This episode is brought to you by Levitt Pavilion. This summer, check out one of my favorite outdoor concert venues in Denver, Levitt Pavilion. May through October, Levitt is offering ticketed and totally free all-ages concerts. I feel like we just go to anything that's free because it's like the kids can be at the show and it's people aren't weird about it and you can like bring a picnic. It's awesome. Some of the free shows this season include Iskali, Melvin Seals, War and Treaty, Sunny War, Chali Tuna, and more. To RSVP for free shows and buy tickets, plus see the full concert schedule, go to levittdenver.org. That's levittdenver.org. Today on CityCast Denver. Fur trappers, soldiers, miners, land speculators, gamblers... Most imagery from Denver's Wild West past is dominated by men. So where were the women? They existed too, and some were businesswomen, like the madams who ran the city's notorious parlor houses and brothels. The story of sex work in Denver is as old as the land itself. And today, History Colorado's assistant curator of cereals, Anne Sneesby Cook, joins me to go back in time and pull back the curtain. Today is Monday, March 20th. I'm Bree Davies, and here's what Denver's talking about. Anne Sneesby Cook, welcome to CityCast Denver. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. And I have to ask straight out, who was the most notorious madam in early Denver? Probably either. It's it's a competition. There are lots of notorious madams in um, early Denver, but probably the most well-known are um, Maddie Silks and Jenny Rogers. Tell me about them. Who were these ladies? Well, they were entrepreneurs. They were businesswomen. They really set the trend for um, opulence uh, along Denver's Market Street, which um, was also notoriously called The Row. And um, they were they were women who who came west, who saw a business opportunity, um, who opened parlor houses, and not only opened one parlor house, they opened many. They they owned property up and down the row, and were constantly changing hands and and doing deals. And so they opened these parlor houses. They employed women who worked as sex workers in the houses. And um, they made quite a bit of money doing so. Yeah. How did the Maddie Silks and the Jenny Rogers get to that place? How did they do that? Well, they 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 started out small. Um, Jenny Rogers was born on a farm in Pennsylvania, and she was the daughter of a um, of a farmer who sold produce, and she sold produce on the streets of um, Allegheny, Pennsylvania, and just thought of a, a world bigger than that. She she married a, a, a doctor <laughs> and realized that being a doctor's wife was not the life for her. So she took up with the steamboat captain and eventually made her way to St. Louis, where she became close with the um, chief of police and um, then made her way to Denver, where she had a bit of a nest egg maybe provided by this um, this acquaintance with the, the chief of police. And she bought her first house actually from Maddie Silks for about $5,000. And and what about Maddie Silks? Like, tell me her story because she's kind of more well-known. Yeah, Maddie was 
kind of the undisputed queen of the row. Um, she was <laughs> described as um, at one point as an a well-upholstered and accomplished hellraiser. (laughs) (laughs) And she also came from a a, a farming background and she made her way across through like Indiana and Missouri. She was, her, her born name was Martha A. Nimmin. And she along the way met and married or was, or a common law wife of a man named um, Casey Silks. And that's how she came across the last name Silks, which was oh, it's a, like a, a, so it was a perfect name given her profession. So she opened her first sporting house, which you know another euphemism for parlor house or or brothel, when she was nineteen, and she opened it up in Springfield, either Illinois or Missouri. It's it's not it's not known. And then she opened houses in Dodge City and Abilene, Kansas. And she boasted that she was always a madame and never oh. one of the girls. Of course. <laughs> and she and she says she said she went into the sporting life for business reasons and for no other. It was a way for women to make money in those days. And she made it. And um, she eventually makes her way to Denver, but not without stopping in mining towns along the way. And she had um, maybe four or five women who worked for her who came along with them. They set up a canvas tent. They had a canvas bathtub. So they offered that service as well. So I'm wondering if it was kind of like the precursor to glamping in a way. (laughs) Like come, come get a break from the real rough life of being a miner and exactly hang out with our ladies and maybe take a bath. They would always <laughs> set up downhill from the mines because it was easier for the miners to walk downhill <laughs> to to their establishment than to walk uphill to it. So I think you know she was a very keen and savvy businesswoman. Um, you know, making her way, like realizing that there's money, there's money to be made in these mining camps. There's lonely men there's very few women and you know if you you move from camp to camp you can make some quick money i want to set the scene for folks you've been talking about the row i'm thinking about mm-hmm. where this would be in downtown denver in the 1870s i i think it's it's known as market street now right yeah it's market street it was there were brothels and cribs along the cherry creek early on as Denver started to to grow and as started to fill in these red light districts, these sin sin districts, as they're sometimes called, started gravitating towards um, what was called McGaw Street. Okay, and it was McGaw Street in the eighteen sixties, and then it changes its name in eighteen sixty six to Holiday Street, which is named after um, Ben Holiday, who was a stagecoach the stagecoach king of of Denver. Um, And by 1887, the the Holiday family was, please, can we rename this area? Can we not, could it not be named after our predecessor, our ancestor? Um, And so it was named to Market Street. So between Market Street, between about 18th and 23rd was the red light district. So like um, sex work was never legal in Denver, but it was somewhat tolerated as long as it was contained to this one area. Sure. There was certainly a um, hierarchy of establishments along the row. You had the opulent parlor houses, 
Then you had common brothels. There was high-end brothels, and then there were common brothels. And then there were cribs, which were usually like one or two room sort of shacks, or they were squeezed in between like the bigger establishments. And then you had the women who who didn't work inside a an establishment who they're they were called streetwalkers then. So there was there was a hierarchy of the women who worked in the parlor houses, you know, kind of looked down upon the women who worked in the brothels, who looked down on the women who worked in the cribs, who worked looked down on the women who worked on the streets. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Wine Board. Because the wine community here is, like, surprisingly robust. I mean, think about Bigsby's Folly and Infinite Monkey Theorem here in Denver alone. And there are urban wineries all across the Front Range. Then there's the Western Slope, Peonia, I mean, Palisade. Hello, Palisade Wine, are you kidding me? It didn't used to really be a thing, but from what I hear, it's very much a thing now. There are more than 165 wineries across Colorado to explore, and they produce all sorts of wine that reflect our unique culture and climate. So finding a label that you're going to love is easy, no matter where your adventure takes you. Discover it for yourself and support local winemakers at coloradowine.com. That's coloradowine.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You've described kind of a hierarchy of establishments, like the parlor houses were known for being opulent and genteel. But I wonder, like, what was it like to work in or what was it like to visit one of these lower end brothels, like the no frills, like just regular come on over, meet a lady. Yes. Hang out. <laughs> well, and not even hang out. I mean, like, it was, <laughs> just they're, like they're very quick transactions. They talk about like on a payday, the miners and the ranchers and the cowboys would come into Denver to to euphemistically see the elephant. Um, which was uh, which was a euphemism for just having a good time. Okay. But they would come into Denver and they would line up outside of these cribs and they had their money in one hand, their hat in the other, and they never took their boots off. It was wow. it was it was quick business. And on a payday, a crib girl could see thirty oh. to fifty customers oh in a goodness. day. I mean, it was that's heavy. It's a lot. It's bleak, too. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, talking about the parlor houses and talking about women like Maddie Silks and and Jenny Rogers, who lived these sort of romantic lives. I don't want to romanticize them because they certainly had their share of troubles. I mean, they had troubles with the law. They had troubles in their, their personal lives. You know, they were also in the bu- <laughs> the business of selling sex. Yeah. And that's not always. It doesn't always. I like you're saying the romanticization part of it. I think we can fall into this trope of like what we imagine the Wild West to be. Mm -hmm. And then the realities. You think of Miss Kitty and in Gunsmoke and, uh, you know, the the saloon girl with the heart of gold. But 
I mean, I think the the reality of it was most women worked in cribs and common brothels or on the streets. Uh, they often used sex work as a way to supplement really meager earnings because there wasn't a lot of options for women to make money. And this was a quick way to make money. It didn't mean that it was the preferred Sure. Yeah, your your preferred profession. So somewhere between like the, the romanticization of women like Maddie Silks and Jenny Rogers and the you know parlor houses and just sort of the the bleak grim reality of working the streets or working in a crib. I mean, somewhere is the actual the actual experience. So how were sex workers viewed by the rest of society at this time? Poorly. Um mm-hmm. you, Victorian perspectives on and sexuality, particularly women who engaged in sex work, saw them as somehow depraved. They were compromised somehow sexually and morally. That a woman fell, the, the fallen, the idea of the fallen angel, that women fell into sex work because they had been somehow seduced or they had been traduced or they had been stolen away by an unscrupulous man. And yet there, it was also considered a necessary evil because there was also sexual, like Victorian sexual perspectives that men needed this sort of release, lest they take, it, their, take out their sexual urges out on their wives. Mm, they go to this sort of what is perceived to be a lower, l- lesser version. Yeah, of- but at the same time, like why parlor houses were so popular was because they gave another experience that, mm. that these women, the women who worked in parlor houses were expected to be educated. They're expected to be attractive. They're expected to be well-mannered. So yeah, there's this this idea, this sentimentality about the fallen angel. She's usually of a good family. She's predominantly white. She's always good looking, but somehow she has fallen. She's tripped down the primrose pass to dispense, you know, to to sin. And now this is her only choice. She has no other recourse. And I feel like this narrative that is not uncommon even today is uh, that there's no agency. These women don't have agency over their bodies or experiences. And and I, I know that's an important component of the conversation around sex work in, in mm-hmm, present day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder, is there, did you ever get a, have you gotten a sense in your research that these women had a sense of agency over their work. I, I do. I, I think this idea of the fallen angel, like you said, like removes any sense of agency that you're like, you're forced into this lifestyle. But many women chose sex work for, you know, as, as many reasons as women choose sex work now because it pays the bills. Desertion by, you know, like divorce and desertion by like a wage earning male, right. yeah, like head of household, this sort of um, economic precarity of like having to be- depend on a male ha- head of household for your livelihood, you know, when that that's taken away, there's not a lot of options left. And you could work as a seamstress or a laundress or a, a milliner or, you know, any of these low-wage jobs that were offered. Yeah, factory work. Or you could take up sex work and make Whereas one makes six dollars a week, maybe in a laundry where you might actually be dealing with sexual harassment by the men who are working there, you know, at least 
you've chosen. You have a little bit more control in the agency and like the power dynamics could be maybe challenged a little bit more than in other places, especially in this Victorian era society. Right. It's very buttoned up. And you you make six dollars, four dollars a week as a as a laundress. Lil Powers, who is a she was a laundress for a while and then chose you know changed that profession for the oldest profession. She made a dollar a week, and half of it went to rent. Oh. Compare that to making thirty dollars a night. Right. It's just like a no. It's a no brainer. Right. Um, I, I just have a question about sort of, I'm thinking about, you know, I, I grew up in the 90s and um, I think about Craigslist and mm-hmm. Backpage and now mm-hmm. I would say maybe Instagram and OnlyFans are ways that sex workers can connect with their their clientele. How were women doing this in a society that felt that on the surface to maybe need to be discreet? There were publications. There was a publication called The Reliable Guide to Denver's Pleasure Resorts. Okay. We call it the Denver Red Book. And it lists among like places to get cigars and a good drink. It also lists um, resorts owned by different proprietresses advertising how many rooms they had that you know discretion was promised everything was first class in every respect so that was one way to advertise sure also the madams were very slick marketers they would often hold um discount nights or they would hire marching bands to <laughs> to parade down market street advertising their houses so good <laughs> um, public water fights public pillow fights, which apparently has always been a thing. <laughs> oh, so we're talking like those, when I see those like mud wrestling things and, yeah. and wet t-shirt contests, this is not a new phenomenon. <laughs> it's not a new phenomenon. I mean, this was a way to market the the ladies of the house and their various physical attributes. Oh my gosh. I, lo- I love that image. I can't even imagine what Market Street must have been like oh. in the in the the late 1800s, early 1900s. It must have just like just swarms of people and the the sounds and the smells and <laughs> and it it. I mean, I've I've done walking tours of Market Street and it's there's it's always really loud and hard to talk over the crowd. But like I I can't imagine what it would have been like then. Oh my God. And well, I could talk to you forever. <laughs> I could talk about it forever too. <laughs> but I, I really appreciate you giving this perspective and sharing this story because it's just something I, I think about when I wander around downtown. You think about what happened right. before. Every time I walk down Market Street, I the, the House of Mirrors still stands. Right. Where is that? It's right next to Lodos. Okay. Maddie Silk sold it in like 1918 to a Buddhist monastery, a Buddhist church. The the conflicting energy in that <laughs> building's got to be amazing. So, but folks can. This is something you could. Yeah, you can go. It, it's um, 1942 Market Street, and you can see the House of Mirrors. Most of the parlor houses were torn down or turned into. Um, warehouses during the prohibition now most of them are parking lots but there's a couple that are still there that's awesome well ants needs me cook thank you so much for joining me oh you're so welcome and here's what else denverites are talking about 
bison. Last week, Denver transferred 35 bison from our mountain park herds to the northern Arapaho and eastern Shoshone tribes. According to Denverite, this transfer has become an annual tradition since 2021 when local tribal elders reached out to the parks department and started a conversation. At the transfer in Genesee Mountain Park last week, William Talbull said that they've been building on that relationship, quote, the way it should have been. The current bison agreement runs through 2030, so we can expect this unique repatriation project to continue. And speaking of the effort to redress crimes of the past, we have an update on a story we brought you last December about the Denver Art Museum and the international trade in stolen cultural artifacts. The Denver Post reports that the dam has decided to remove the late Emma Bunker's name from the gallery that has carried her name since 2021. They are also returning the $125,000 she donated to the museum. Bunker was previously implicated in an international art trafficking scheme led by Douglas Latchford. She reportedly used her status as a scholar to manipulate the dam into validating and elevating the value of his stolen goods. That's the power of good journalism, people. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell the ghost of Maddie Silks about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter, Hey Denver, by texting Denver to 66866. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye-bye. I was named after a character that Jane Fonda plays. She plays a sex worker in this movie, Clute. And my mom saw it when she was pregnant with me. And she was like, I love this name. I'm going to pick it. And then she's like, and then like three of my girlfriends named their kids Brie after I did it. And I was like, I'm sure it was you, mom. I'm sure you really came up with it. The movie posters look amazing. I would recommend it. It also involves a telephone with a cord. So, you know, I love it. Old school.